My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give participants in a wide range of social change work a chance to take a longer view as they talk about what they do, how they do it, and why they do it. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Paul Chuma and Amy Lowe. We tend to have a very narrow sense of what bodies are supposed to be, what they are supposed to be able to do, and how lives are supposed to be lived. From the built form of our cities, to the way our organizations function, to the nuances of many interpersonal interactions, as well as lots of other things, many aspects of how our social world works respond to bodies that don't fit this narrow norm in ways that disable them. Note the framing of this as active and social. Chuma and Lowe are organizers with Accessibilize Montreal, a new group that enters the long tradition of challenging such ableist and restricting aspects of how our social world works. Much of their initial focus is on very practical and physical barriers, such as the city's transit system and access to buildings. Their approach features a major emphasis on experience and on stories. Chuma and Lo talk with me about the group's founding, its early activities, and its emerging vision for challenging ableism. I spoke with them by Skype from Montreal. My name is Paul Chuma, and I'm originally from Africa, Zimbabwe. I have been living in Canada, Montreal for over 10 years now. I'm also a student at Concordia University in jazz music. And this is my fourth year, second year in the program. About five years ago, my brother and I started a group, United Tribulation Choir. I've always had passion for music. My name is Amy Lowe. I'm an independent journalist living in Montreal. I originally met Paul through the band, actually, so we sing together and now we started organizing with Accessibilized Montreal. And a little bit about the group. It's a group of people who identify as having a disability or not, who are interested in making Montreal more accessible, both in terms of the infrastructure of the city and also the perceptions and judgments of people in the city. The reason that we called it Accessibilized Montreal is to turn the focus outward. There's a lot of talk, a lot of discourse about disability being about the individual or in terms of medical terms and how it's kind of like a personal problem or personal barriers, right? So what we wanted to do is turn the focus outward, look toward the city and the spaces that we're in and focus on making those accessible rather than focus on, you know, the historical idea that people with disabilities are deficient. Me and Paul and a few other people, we've been talking about it for a while. It's something that has always been in the back of my mind as something that I want to organize around, but I wasn't always there personally. I had to work through some personal ideas about disability and about my own experience of the city in order to get to that point where I can make things public and start speaking out about things. In the summer, I had an experience that really reduced my mobility very quickly. That kind of brought a lot of issues to the forefront for me, particularly in terms of like transit accessibility. Because my mobility was reduced so quickly because of an accident, I really noticed a change in the way that people treated me and perceived me. That really was my personal catalyst because it just hit me so quickly. 
my own experience as a person with physical limitations is that I've had so many obstacles that I face when going to buildings. There are still some places that are not easily accessible in terms of opening doors, automatic door openers, and that also brought about when Amy came up with the idea of wanting to start Accessible Montreal. I was like, yeah, this is a great opportunity to voice out. A lot of the things that we've done and or are planning to do are based around personal experiences. We want to share our personal experiences, collect stories of other people, so that when we engage in dialogue with people like the board of directors of the STM, like the transit system, or city officials, we can draw personal experiences and try to come at this discussion with a way that people will maybe think, oh man, what if I was in that situation, you know, like to increase empathy and understanding of the struggles that the city poses for people, for the people making decisions about whether or not they're going to put concrete ramps on the sidewalks or build elevators in the metro and things like that. Yeah, we want to take like a personal experience kind of standpoint and build on it from that perspective. To add on that, it's like based on also personal experience, I tend to imagine that and also to think that, you know, when we don't have a disability, we tend to not take things in priority. This has really bothered me in the long run that we are the last people on the list when it comes to the country budgeting for accessibility and everything. We are not on the top list. This has really brought me to a point of saying, you know, why don't we have people and those committees involved when it comes to budget? Take this at a personal level because the people that are planning all these things, they have not had any experience. It only hits them when an accident happens. Then it's like, oh, wow, I didn't see that. So that's our goal to bring that awareness to people. You make a good point, Paul. It's not like a public priority in Canada, in federal and provincial legislation, but particularly in Quebec. I had this thought this summer when I was traveling through the metro. There's only four stations on the island of Montreal that have elevators and only like three off-island in the suburbs that are the newer stations that have elevators. And I just had this thought, the people making decisions about public spending, how are you going to get around when you get old and break your hip? Or how does your mother come to meet you when you go for breakfast? You know what I mean? There's such a disconnect between the reality of physical limitations or challenges and the way that people perceive the abilities of the public. I don't know. I think if we if we attack the issue from people's perceptions and the judgments that people have about disability, then I think that will influence so many different aspects of public life. Tell me about the people who have come together to make Accessibilize Montreal. How did you connect with people? We started off with our close friends that are already supporting and have been around us at all times, go to different places with us, and they've witnessed the inaccessibility, the difficulty that we encounter when we have to go out with them, and the fact that they have to find places that are mostly accessible which aren't that many. And through that, we then decided, well, what we're going to do, since we have a lot of friends that are supporting and are really not pleased with the way Quebec is functioning in terms of accessibility. So that's when this idea came up and we started building up the Facebook page and invited friends and friends invited their friends. 
And that's how we've come to connect with people that really supporting the group. The group started in the fall, so it's a very new crew. Like Paul said, we're a bunch of friends. And I don't know, for me, it's really important to build a movement that's based on friendship and and laughter. And like, so one of the first events we had as a group was a meeting slash tea party. We called it a strategy tea. First of all, it was about getting to know people that we didn't know. Hanging out, having a warm beverage, getting to know each other, listen to some good hip-hop, just chill out, and then go from there to talk about strategy and how we want to build the movement. We're talking about different ways to bring awareness to our community first, and how we're going to approach and voice out to different people. So the first talk, if I remember clearly, was that we had to create some flyers and we're going to put them with some stickers and give people some stickers with the name of the group. And that way, that's how we're going to get to voice out and get people's attention. And we were also, we talked about either having short video clips that we might have to eventually post online and talk about different personal experience and also hear from other non-disabled people how they perceive it, how they think about accessibility, what comes into their minds and how do they feel about places that are not accessible so that we know where everybody stands and whether every is there anybody aware of it or not. So that way we'll bring also about a lot of uh, awareness into the community for people that are not always thinking about these things. And it's interesting, too, because the group, we don't all share the same political views, but accessibility is one of those issues that brings together people with diverse perspectives and experiences and politics. It's kind of funny because sometimes when I'm in activist groups, there's almost like this assumption that we all have the same ideas about how things should be or that we all fall on a certain spot on the political spectrum. But the group is really diverse, and that's one of the really exciting things about it, because we're still like committed, and we're working together and we're forming friendships across different political lines and different ideologies. But one thing that struck me about the first strategy tea was that I thought that we were just going to kind of go chill out, get to know each other, and we did that. But also, people were really into getting down to business. Already after the first strategy tea, people were like, okay, I'm going to research accessibility in other cities. Somebody was like, okay, I'm going to plan the next event. Myself and a couple of other people got together to talk about the workshops that are going to happen. So, like, already people expressed what strengths they bring to the group and how they want to move forward. So it was really exciting. Being in an inaccessible place can be really alienating. And so even just the act of coming together and talking about this thing that's so stigmatized, it's, like, really empowering for me. I feel that I have this crew of people behind me, you know? And so mm-hmm. it's really exciting, like, on a personal level. And I think even just the act of coming together and talking about, oh, my ride was canceled today for no reason, or this creepy STM driver took a picture of my face today for there was no reason for that. And just, like, weird shit that we encounter, to just voice that is super huge. And already I think that's a big act of resistance. One thing that we should say is the group is primarily Anglophones or people who have other languages than English or French first. 
And it just sort of happened that way because we're based out of Concordia University, and so it's a pretty Anglophone community. But we're also really reaching out to French speakers and also organizations that also work on accessibility that are mostly French-speaking. So we're trying to build that link as well. Tell me more about the meetings that you've had with the STM. For the past four months, Myself and some other people, depending on the month, have been going to the board meetings of the STM. That's the Transit Society of Montreal. Every month, the STM has a meeting where members of the public can go and express concerns in the form of a question or two. When I started meeting with the STM, I was using a wheelchair. The thing that struck me first was that I was hard to get into the building. And it was even in the fall when there was no precipitation or snow. Even the access to the building is like a a gong show. Even something as simple as getting access to the elevator in the STM headquarters. You have to call a security guard to escort you up to the... So the first barrier to even talking with the board of directors of the STM is getting in. And then, of course, there's linguistic barriers. And I do speak French. It's not my first language, so it's more work. So that's the initial reaction. But in terms of the actual meetings... You have to go sign up early, write down all your personal information, and then you're entitled to ask a question of the board. It's kind of like a frustrating experience, but it's also interesting. So we started doing that, myself and just like a few people, you know, and every month it's growing. So we each bring different questions to the board each month. I think last time I went, I asked, why don't bus stops have benches? A lot of stops, they either have bus shelters or nothing, and so it's pretty challenging to get around if you do walk like myself, but I need time to pause or take a breather, you know? So that was one of my questions. Another person asked, why is the province slash city spending so much on (laughs) the Charter of Values, what some might argue as a really racist and xenophobic bill of values, when the actual implementation of rights-based legislation for people with disabilities isn't being respected. So they made that link. So, like, everybody comes with their own question. We don't plan it before. It's just about expressing our concerns. And from that, I've had a lot of meetings with people from the STM who have contacted me because they know that I'm raising questions about accessibility. Because they had my contact information, the representative on the board, who is the representative for Transport Adapté, which is the adapted transit system for people with disabilities, she contacted me and set up a meeting with myself and the member of RUTA, which is an organization that represents, whose mandate is to represent people with mobility, diversity, shall we say. So I met with those two women, and I mean, I'm going to be honest, I felt like the meeting was an attempt to say, we're doing things, things are slow because we don't have money, we're on your side, so stop complaining. But that said, I learned, you know, everything's a learning experience. So I learned some of the ways that both the board and this organization, Buta, function. I found out that the STM, they have like a working relationship with this other organization that claims to represent the interests of people with disabilities. But the way that they function is very closed. So it's even a challenge to get access to the information that this secondary organization is providing to the STM. So when you raise questions about okay, why aren't there elevators in the metro? Or why do only half of the buses have ramps that work? The STM will say, well, we received a report from Ruta that gave us the directives for the ways that we're going to implement accessibility policies in the organization. So then when you go to this organization, Ruta, it's very challenging 
to actually access those reports that they provided last year. So they're very close in terms of communication. And that's not necessarily a negative thing. It's just that's one of the first things that I noticed when I started communicating with both of them is like they have an understanding as to where the directives for policy changes are coming from. And then later on, I was invited to a meeting with two of the actual employees of the STM who work on accessibility. That was really interesting because they showed me all the ways that they, they work for accessibility and how many challenges they have within the organization to push the agenda of accessibility. For example, I'm not sure how many employees the SDM has, but it's definitely in the like, tens of thousands with drivers and everybody. And then the accessibility department literally consists of three people. Yeah, so I'm learning a lot about that and how much resistance in the organization itself there is to making things more accessible. Sometimes it's disheartening, but other times it's not because, you know, learning about how discriminatory structures work is important to breaking them down. So it's been like kind of fruitful. It's still like a really bureaucratic battle and there's so much prejudice in the SEM that they don't even acknowledge that there's a really significant problem in terms of accessibility. So that's one aspect of the group so far that we've been focusing on. And it's just because it's such an urgent issue. If you can't get around, then you can't go and organize demos or have other meetings because if you can't get around, then it's as simple as that, you know? For addressing the infrastructural elements, is there a legal framework that activists can choose or not choose to take advantage of in Quebec, like something equivalent to the Americans with Disabilities Act? Uh, no, no, there's not. I mean, there isn't federal legislation like the ADA in Canada, nor is there provincial the organization Raflec, which is a group of activists devoted to inclusion in Quebec, that's my rough translation, they are engaging in filing complaints with the Quebec Human Rights Commission. That's like a provincial body that looks at different human rights concerns. But one of the things that Raflec is calling for, which, I mean, I totally agree with, is to create a separate commission for issues of accessibility or discrimination based on disability. Because there isn't even a strong legal framework to call for increased accessibility. Like right now, basically, we're just scrambling and saying, you should do this based on moral grounds, or you should do this because one day you're going to need an elevator or what have you. But um, but yeah, no, there isn't really a strong formal structure to call for accessibility. What are some of the other things that Accessibilize Montreal wants to focus on? We've been planning workshops. So the first workshop is going to be in February. It's going to be part of a McGill social justice event. Well, that's going to also hopefully get the word out to more people so that they come out and build connections. But also the idea of the workshops is also to challenge stereotypes about ability, disability, and accessibility. Basically, we want to focus on also the accessibility of the buildings and also in the winter too with the snow and everything. What we want to do is to make sure that in the winter, also like this past winter, we had a lot of snow and it was really difficult to get around because once the snow was cleaned up, it was piled up on the access where it's supposed to be for wheelchairs, which makes it a bit difficult for the STM transport to come pick us up. So there were a couple of times when we had to cancel our appointments. Even if you have to go to school, you have to cancel it because there's no way you're going to be able to go to school. 
And I mean, I know it's redundant, right? Like, there's a lot of discourse in radical disability politics about moving beyond ramps and elevators and Braille, and I completely agree, and I Of course, I want to talk about things that follow from discussions about just infrastructure, physical infrastructure, but at the same time, it's completely debilitating. If you can't get around, like I said already, nothing else can happen except sitting at home and writing, which is also really awesome. But <laughs> but some of the other issues that we want to look at are the perceptions of people in Montreal of people with disabilities. There's a lot of ableism here. And it's often not explicit, so it's not always clear. You can't always call someone out on being like, okay, you're being ableist right now, right? But it's, it's really pervasive, so that happens in terms of attitudes towards people. Or things like, you know, when you're going down the sidewalk, having people bump into you. That's really challenging, and if you view that in terms of ableism, it's actually a really strong image that people aren't looking out for each other, people aren't thinking of where they live in terms of community, they're thinking of where they live or their public spaces in terms of where they have to go next and the important things that they're doing that make it okay for them to walk into people or to not look out for each other or not offer a spot on a bench or a bus seat or things like that. So yeah, we're looking at transit a lot and, and physical infrastructure, but at the base of all of that is this pervasive ableism, this pervasive attitude that having a disability is your problem and we're not going to work together to find solutions together. Earlier, kind of in passing, you referred to, I think, something along those lines in terms of stigma. Tell me a bit more about how stigma plays into all of it. Okay, here's the thing. I grew up in an environment where everybody around me didn't have a disability or else if they did, they didn't talk about it, except in medicalized areas, such as when I was doing physiotherapy as a kid or having surgeries or whatnot. So the way that I grew up, I internalized a lot of ableism, and I still do. It's very challenging. And some of that means, like when I catch a reflection of myself in a shop window or something, I feel very self-conscious of my posture or the way that my arms look. And a part of the ableism that runs throughout our society is internalized, right? And that's a very challenging thing to address. But I think the first step is talking about it, and it's really hard to do that. That's my personal first step, is just, like, voicing it, you know? But in terms of the experiences of ableism, uh, I don't know, man, it's everywhere. Here's an example. I'm slow at things physically, so when I'm buying shit at the pharmacy, I'm slow getting out my wallet. And it's very stressful because I feel like I'm holding up the line and people are literally sighing and chomping at the bit to get to the cash neck. It's totally tied into our capitalist system. It's totally tied into the drive for efficiency to like be as fast and productive as possible. So part of addressing that is just in that moment being like, okay, can you wait like 30 seconds, please? I'm doing what I have to do to get out of your way, right? It's small things like that that are daily reminders that people are impatient or people are viewing me as like, getting in their way or causing some sort of negative effect on them. Other experiences of ableism, for me it's physical, right? So in public spaces, I notice, I don't know, glances or like, remember that time at Jazz Fest? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that chick came up to us and we're like, Felicitation! Exactly. That means, like, congratulations, that. like, you're out. <laughs> out there, yeah. <laughs> like, some of these things are, like, underhanded insults. 
you can't really say like, screw you, <laughs> but you have you have to say thank you. But it's like super insulting. Really, you should not be congratulating us for like getting out and living our lives. You know? But yeah, you should treat us as a normal person. But right there, you're already seeing the difference between you and the other people. You know? Yeah, exactly. You're delineating based on your own perspective of how a person should look or act or be. You know? Yeah, and I always have several encounters, especially in the public. It's like I get into a public space, let's say the mall, the shopping mall, and I need to go upstairs. Literally, I think in people's minds when they see a physically disabled person with a visible disability, the first thing when the person is trying to talk to them, it's like, oh, they need money. I should give them money. And I often encounter that every time I go downtown and I say, excuse me. Just by me saying excuse me before they could listen to what I want to say, it's like, no, I'm sorry, I don't have money. Are you kidding? Of course. What? I didn't like, know that, Paul. I often Whoa. get those. But you know, that speaks to the fact that people with disabilities are living in pretty extreme poverty in a lot of cases, right? But yo, that's rough. Man. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then in my head, I'm always like, I have a cell phone, I have a Bluetooth in my ear. Can't you just tell that I don't need money, you know? I just need your help. So it's the same thing in the grocery stores. When I get people to get me stuff, whenever I say, excuse me, either they move away, oh, I'm sorry, and then they walk away. I'm like, no, no, <laughs> I just need you to get this thing for me on the shelf. Why do you think that stories are so important to the kind of organizing work that you want to do? Personally, stories for me are kind of a map into a direction that we want to venture into and also with stories you got to know that you're not alone at least there's some people right out there that have not voiced out and if we all come together with the same story and compress them and put them into one then when we voice out our concerns and our opinions then that way it brings a lot of weight because it's not only Amy or I voicing out but a collective of people that are faced with different kinds of disability and uh, mobilizing. For me, I've always been really drawn to stories, storytelling and reading. They just appeal to me personally, but I've spent a lot of time doing anti-colonial organizing and talking with a lot of indigenous activists and elders and people who are fighting similar like monolithic view of how Canadians should be. And for me, the thing that affects me the most because I approach it with curiosity and I'm trying to learn how to approach anti-colonialism as a settler Canadian, right? So for me, the things that have the most impacts are like people's personal stories and First Nations stories of oppression or of, of discrimination, right? And so when I then start thinking about activism based on my own personal experience, I kind of transfer that approach that I've taken part of as a supporter. And I think, okay, as someone involved directly in the struggle, sharing stories will have the highest likelihood of piquing someone's interest or increasing understanding. So that's why I find it so important to share stories, because I think that that's really a way that people can connect across differences. We all connect when we hear a story. You have been listening to my interview with Paul Chuma and Amy Lowe of Accessibilize Montreal. To find out more about their work, search for Accessibilize Montreal on Facebook. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, 
or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.